Welcome to the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. My name is Jason Sacco and I'm your host. As a 35-plus year Spondy, I'm looking to use this show to bring the Spondy community closer. I'll give my lifelong battle with AS to you. That includes triumphs, tragedies, and lessons. So sit back, enjoy, and know you are not alone. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. I'm so happy you've joined me today because my guest is just a fantastic person. Her name is Lisa Marie Basili, and I've gotten to know Lisa from working with her at Health Union, where we both work on the website ankylosingspondylitis.net. And Lisa is an author, a poet, an essayist, an editor, and also, most importantly for all of us, a chronic illness advocate, as she has ankylosing spondylitis herself, and we'll discuss that in the interview. But before we get to the interview... I'd like to have you go over to spondypodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. There's some really exciting things coming in the next few months around that. Also, if you'd like to support the show, please go over to buymeacoffee.com and I'll have a link in the show notes where you can make a one-time or ongoing donation to help sponsor the show. And with that, let's go on to the interview. Well, Lisa, welcome to the show. I just gave the intro about you and it's so rich and varied and your background is so immense but on top of all those interesting and fantastic great things that you've accomplished you also have ankylosing spondylitis how did you come across the discovery of ankylosing spondylitis and is it something that ran in your family yes well thank you so much for having me i really appreciate being here i was diagnosed in 2017 but i'd been having symptoms for about a decade and it does run in my family. My father has it, my aunt, his sister has it, and we think that my grandma, who's passed now, had it. She probably had it the worst of all of us, sort of, in that it, I think it really debilitated her. And then I probably have it worse than my aunt and my father. So it's definitely been a journey, and just talking about it and you know researching it is something I'm really passionate about. Well, of course, you've got such a varied background in being published across all sorts of different genres, primarily poetry. That's your what I can take as your real love. But you <laughs> yeah. also do a lot of writing. And that's how I met you is at ankylosingspondylitis.net. We both yeah. kind of work there on and off. And, and you more so than me, you write a lot of articles for that website. What drives you? I mean, you're relatively new to the diagnosis compared to a lot of folks. That doesn't make it good or bad. But what drives mm -hmm. you so much to be such a giver as you go through your own journey with this? That's a great question. You know, I, I think I love writing for them, first of all, Health Union and net. They're such a lovely bunch of like people. It feels like family at this point. For me, I think there's always been a part of me that wants to write to create like a community or a sense of understanding of the self. And I guess for a long time, I, I sort of felt like writing was my way of being in the world. And that was my contribution. It was how I could help. It was how I could make a difference, how I could understand myself and others. So it's just like kind of my natural language is to write. So when it comes to pain or suffering, whether it's mental or physical, I just, I just I don't want people to suffer. So 
if I can write anything that just makes someone feel a little bit less alone or at least as though their their thoughts are valid, I'm glad that writing can enable me to do that. Because I think for a long time, reading helped me feel less alone. So I guess I just want to be what I was given through, I guess, reading and writing when I was younger. You do such a large amount of writing in I find all of your articles very interesting. I've actually based several episodes of the podcast on your articles. Wow. I think this is really interesting because I, I grew up before the internet developed and was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis before the internet. And I was just told, you have this thing, good luck. And really wasn't told yeah. much after that. That's 35 years ago. You wrote an article that I think can help a lot of people. And I'm going to have a link to it in the show notes, but I want to get some more feedback from you. And it's called Staying Sane and Managing AS Facebook Group Usage. Mm. That's one of the things I see people post stuff online. And sometimes I think you can't really attribute everything that goes wrong in your life to AS. Sometimes you can maybe, but I see this constant usage. And how do you try to remove yourself when you're so prolific online to kind of keep sane? Uh, Well, when I was first diagnosed, you know, just being diagnosed in 2017, I still knew I had it before then, but I just, you know, I couldn't afford a rheumatologist really. So it was a lot of internet stuff for me, like a lot of group chats, a lot of Facebook, yeah, Facebook group usage. And I remember in the very beginning, I was using it to, I was essentially driving myself crazy. Mm -hmm. I would ask about anything, ask about any symptoms you know, read everyone's stories, think they're going to be my own. It took a while for me to realize that AS is very, very individual and that, you know, if someone is, you know, incredibly, incredibly ill, it's not necessarily going to reflect everyone else's past. And likewise, if someone is doing them awesomely, it's not going to reflect what everyone's past is going to look like. And it changes every day. So I, I just feel like right now I, I just read the group, you know, I can see when someone is just needing a little bit of comfort. I kind of try to get in there, say something nice, say something supportive, and take everything else with a grain of salt. People can say anything they want. They can say, this is a miracle drug. This experimental center, alternative therapy has cured me. And it's like, okay, you get to say that. I don't need to take that into my brain. It's just a matter of building a wall at this point because I was so gullible and influenced by everyone else's everything that I had to draw a wall. And now it's like I, you know, I post in these groups and I talk to people, but everything's with a grain of salt now. Even when I get advice from people in those groups, it's a grain of salt. I have to do that. And I think everyone should do that because you will throw yourself into a spiral thinking, oh my God, this is going to be me or this drug is not going to work or this is going to cure me. It's like you can't go there in your mind. Yes, I I completely agree. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that when I see somebody new come onto the forums, I try to really get into their brain that my journey is not your journey. I'll be happy to talk to you on your journey, but it, it, you might, you know, I see people that are 60, 70 years old, they're doing yoga, they're doing great, and they have ankylosing spondylitis, and I see others like myself that have kind of fallen apart. And some of it is my own doing because I didn't understand what was going on. Some of it's just the way the disease struck me. And, and we're all different, but we you have to, like you said, you have to learn what to take and what to just kind of skip over and, and you know, just kind of go from there. Exactly. It's hard because it's an emotional thing, but you have to, like, protect yourself. 
And for everybody listening right now, I'm going to have a link in the show notes to ankylosingspondylitis.net, and it's going to have Lisa's page with all of her writing. So if you go right to that link, it'll direct you just directly to the writings she's done on AS. But I don't want to focus on just that. You're a prolific writer, poetry of short essays, of all sorts of things. I'd love it if you would showcase for not only myself, but the listeners, a little bit about some of the poetry you've written. Oh, sure. So I was writing since I was a child. I studied writing in school. I got a master's degree in it, although I would not recommend going into debt for poetry. Um, <laughs> I, and I mean that um, <laughs> I, uh, it's my first love. It's my first language. I love that poetry can be so many different things. It can sound different poet to poet. It can encompass all the human condition and all the kind of like nuance and complexity of the human condition. So I've written a few books of poetry. My last book of poetry is called Nymphalepsy. It came out two years ago. And it's kind of an exploration of the kind of like shedding of the old self and how we kind of grow into a, a new self. But yeah, I've, I've written poetry. I've read poetry all over the world at this point. And I'm getting back into it because lately I've been so focused on the, uh, the nonfiction, so writing about AS and other health stuff, that I think I'm missing poetry in my life again. So I have been writing a little bit about trauma and also chronic illness in poetry. So I'm trying to see how I can talk about AS and the body and the trauma of the body and how the body kind of stores pain. And I'm trying to do something with that with poetry. Um, it's hard because poetry is so beautiful and this feeling is so ugly. But, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I hope to do it. Well, let me ask you, this could be a really dumb question, but again, I'm, I'm not a, I, I don't read poetry. Is there a niche? Is there a market for chronic illness poetry? Is that something, or is that something you're creating? Oh, no, 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 no. There's, there's definitely, it's not a dumb question. And I would say that there's a lot of, there's so many niches, I guess, the way of putting it. And there's certainly a lot of poets writing about chronic illness. I have a magazine called Luna Luna that I run, and we publish pieces about chronic illness all the time, whether it's essays or poetry. And I mean, I just haven't really dabbled in it just yet, but certainly people have. And it's awesome. The, you know, it runs the gamut of perspectives. What's interesting for the listeners, because you're not seeing what I'm looking at right now, but in the show notes, I'm going to have a link to Lisa's website. And on this website, there's so much there that I haven't even scratched the surface of it. And it's broken down into topics, you know, the standard about and a diary. And I didn't even really look at the diary much. Is that something you update on a somewhat regular basis? Yeah, that's pretty regular. Maybe every week so something, some, a few things go up. And it's from all different people. Oh, okay. I follow yeah. you on Instagram, so I'm very familiar with the posts that you do there, but I really had never even thought to go to your website to look and see what you were posting there. It looks like some may be similar, some may be different. Yeah, exactly. So we try to publish a lot of people and voices, but also, you know, I write for it myself too. And with that writing, now, if there's somebody that's listening right now, and I, I guess it really wouldn't matter where they're at in the world, but if they're interested in poetry, reading poetry, getting poetry published, that's something you maybe look for in Luna Luna? I, I, I'm not real sure. Yeah, 
Absolutely. We generally have open submissions in the summertime, and then throughout the year, the editors, including myself, will just sort of open a, a short call for poetry. So, for example, about a week ago, I asked if people wanted to send over poetry about autumn and poetry about chronic illness. So, eventually, that will close, and I'll do a call for something else. But yeah, we're always looking for new poets and poets from around the world, and poets with a marginalized background, poets chronic illness like we would love it now is your poetry as a woman i'm guessing you mostly write from a woman's you know perspective point of view is it mostly on women's topics or is it kind of really generalized i would say that it's got a feminine energy but i don't think it's about women's experiences or topics necessarily i do i write poetry really about a human experience so even though it's filtered through the experience of being a woman it's i don't think it's um i i don't know i guess it's hard to talk about your own writing but i would think it's got a feminine edge definitely more broad and lisa i'm gonna read one of your poems here it, it's a neat one it's both of us are of italian descent so this is kind of a neat little way to to look at your poetry but i wanted to expose the listeners to some of your poetry who might be like me, kind of afraid and not know where to start with poetry, maybe not have had even looked at poetry since high school. So this one is called Saint of Sea Change, and it goes, These days I am, blood song, in this choir of ghosts. I have visions of ancestral cemetery, arabesque, and honey, tesserae of a thousand lives, that we haven't all been so sick, so dead at sea, in cathedrals where we kneel to devils because our hearts haven't been made whole. I am so tired of the cycle and so full of it, veined and spinal, full of the cycle. I could linger forever in this blood wound that I would become patron saint of my own sorrows. Praying at the altar of myself, I am the altar and I am the prayer. I see my reflection in this loop, my eyes in sepia belonging to a girl who washes linen in the sea, who suckles lemonade and God. I want to give my name a new day and stand in our dark wound and touch it, lighted up by the fire of Etna, the Zebobo, and Pomelia, children of children of children who made me, flooding the streets of heaven. Have you ever looked at the sea? It is full of the drunk and the poor, of names that get sliced by time and oppression. It is so honest. You cry into open palms. It says you're home. I am opening wounds that have never seen the light. Generations of clasped palms. I am speaking my name with the music of it. I translate a thousand waves cresting. I am the poet. I am the line break. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. You read that beautifully. Well, oh, thank you. When I read that, tell me what goes through your mind when you wrote something like this, because it's both, you know, I, I can see this person, you know, on the shore doing these things, but it's also very dark in spots. Yeah. Uh, tell me what goes through when you write something like that. For this poem and for some of my recent poetry, I've been trying to explore the ancestral. So trying to dig in a little bit into my, my family background. And you know, my family came from Sicily. They were poor. They didn't have much opportunity. And like so many immigrants came over to the New York, New Jersey area 
just recently. So it was just my grandparents who were, you know, from Sicily and Calabria. And, you know, reading about Italian immigration and how Sicily differs from Italy and all of those cultural differences. And I've just been thinking about how many people have been forgotten or cast away or how much they struggled and how much they turned to God for hope and maybe still struggled after that. So I just kind of wanted to write a poem that embraced all of that beauty of the Italian culture, but also the suffering and the hopelessness that some people may have felt. And I know some of my family has felt. So yeah, I try to, in my poetry, I try to really create like a lush sense of language and emotion. So that's why it's so, <laughs> I guess, dramatic. <laughs> It's just like if you were painting a picture, you're not going to paint everything in one tone. You're going to use all the skills that you have to paint that picture. And that's what you're doing here is you're layering, you know, you're, you're letting me see this lady by the ocean, but you're letting me see some of the trauma and some of the issues she's dealing with on a, a mental side. I, I don't know. I thought it was really good. And I'm, I'm well, not a poetry person. You. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not that I don't like poetry. I have no exposure to poetry. No, that's very fair. Thank you so much. I love the idea of layers. That's beautiful. And when I say prolific writers, I'm telling folks, go to Lisa's website and click on the Read Me tab. The items that will come up there that you have written about in your short life are just amazing, The just the depth of it. Like I said, I've, I've read a couple of things and peeked around at a couple of things, but really as a a neophyte of poetry, you, I kind of get where, you know, you go where to start. So I, I think it's really a well laid out website. And I would encourage anybody that has a desire to write poetry, has written poetry, to reach out to you, whether it be through Instagram or, geez, your website, you're all over Facebook, you're all over the place. It's easy to get in touch with you. Yeah, I would love to hear from people. Thank you. Now, you live in New York City, correct? Yep, I do. How is that as a city to for a person with AS? How, is it easy to get around? Is it a challenge? It's a great question because I've been thinking a lot about accessibility. So I'm really lucky in that, I, I don't know if the word is lucky, I'm privileged right now in that I you know, am very mobile. I can walk on my own. I don't need any assistance yet. Although there are some days where the pain is too much and I, you know, walking just doesn't feel great and I can't do it for a long time. Hips give out, my knees give out. So the city in general can be really tough to navigate, I think, with all of the subway stairs and I mean you're going up and down like a hundred staircases everywhere every day if you're going on the subway. There are elevator banks, but sometimes they're hard to find. You have to walk to them. So that's a whole different layer of issue. And then in terms of just the street and like the rest of the city, a lot of places have some accessible entrances if you're using a wheelchair, but a lot don't. So really, it's like on that just fundamental level, it can be kind of challenging sometimes, but just general like New York City life. When I was younger and had more energy and wasn't nearly like I am today, which is having fatigue all the time. New York felt like a playground, and it felt like this amazing thing where I could find all this opportunity. And now I've become a freelance writer, so I write in my house. 
So I'm not really taking part in that big, you know, sort of New York City lifestyle as much, nor do I really want to because it's a drag on my energy. So I think it definitely is a city that offers a lot. I can see good doctors here. Um, there's a lot of doctors here. But then and there's a lot of cool things here, like I can go swimming if I want to because I'm in pain and there's pools I can have access to. So there's just a lot here. But at the same time, not that I, I, there's something to be said for having a slower pace of life when you're trying to manage a disease. And that's something I hope I'll have in the future. I'll probably leave the sea. So it's a mix, mixed bag. Well, I've got to believe that just about anywhere would be considered a slower pace of life than New York. Um, now, obviously, there's Definitely. exceptions like L.A., Miami. You know, th those are going to be fairly similar. But, yeah, anything outside of that. And as a freelance writer who does, I would assume, most of your stuff at home with very little meetings that can't be accomplished by a Zoom interface, right. you could pretty much go wherever you want it. Oh, yeah. And it's something I daydream about often. Um, my partner, Ben, he's in real estate. He's pretty tied to the city right now, but he's English, and so hopefully in the future we'll be off to the other side of the pond. And that's actually cool for another reason, which is that I've noticed that English people, the English system is pretty like hyper aware of AS, and they have a lot of resources for their for their uh, citizens. So yeah, it's my dream to have just like a little garden and. Uh, a country who knows about AS. It is. You know, having this show and talking and, you know, there's, there'll be people from the UK listening and they do seem to have a bit more that they're what I think they call it the national health care system seems to have a bit more yeah. information related to health care. And I, that's got to be partially based on A, the size of the country and B, the structure of their health care program. So it makes it a much easier way for a national system to, to push out or disseminate information and all the doctors pick it up versus here where, oh, yeah. you know, you got thousands of doctors spread between thousands of clinics and there's just literally no way to push out something from a national level easily. It can be done. It's just yeah. not easy. Yeah, absolutely. It's much, much smaller. Much, much, much. If somebody wanted to start off, what would be the best spot to start reading? What would be a good entry level reader for you, Lisa, what, to get somebody started in, in your books? If anyone has interest in beautiful language, I like, I do tend to write with more uh, lush language. Other people and poets and writers write more straightforward. If people are interested in writing that kind of has a little bit of the magic, ritual, maybe a little bit of spirituality, that's where you might, you might find that in my writing. And if people, I think want something very, very emotional and sort of confessional and honest and vulnerable, I think my writing might suit them, um, I hope. <laughs> so light magic for dark times might be a good beginning spot to start for people to explore your writings? I don't know if that's a great spot just because it's such a specific book. That book is a book of practices that people can embrace when they're going through like crisis or trauma. So it doesn't really include much of my personal writing. It's more geared toward the reader. But it is a great book for anyone who's going through something. Okay, so that's really geared towards or around people that are dealing with trauma. So that's interesting. Yeah. 
there's such a specificness to some of your writing and things that you've done that it's really, like I said, for a lay person like myself, I've read so much of your stuff on ankylosingspondylitis.net that to go to the poetry side is a complete, like, shocker to me. <laughs> not, not in a bad way. It's just like I sit there and go, uh-oh, okay, where do I go from here? Yeah. Yeah, I totally understand. It's a, it's, it's a big gap. I love reading about ankylosing spondylitis, though. Well, in your writing, you've really been kind of featured all over the place. What was it like to be in some of the things like Amy Poehler's Smart Girls, Hello Giggles, The Cools, and things like that? What, How was that working with all those different places to get recognized? A lot of the time, they reach out and they just say, you know, we're interested in you. We'd like to hear from you. Some of the time, I reach out to different places and I tell them about a book or something and see if they're interested in collaborating but most of the time, all of these people are like writers myself. So they work for these magazines, for these publications, and they know what it is to be a writer. So there's a sort of familiarity there. They know the kinds of questions to ask. They know how to talk about writing. And so it it's fun and it's interesting and it's like a little family. Um, I'm always super I'm always honestly surprised when anyone cares. <laughs> so it's really, really, really cool that I got these opportunities. It's amazing. It's cool. It's crazy. It's my younger self inside me would be like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so I'm really grateful for it. Oh, I bet. Anything you get, anytime you put work out there and hope somebody likes it, that's great. But then to get some feedback from peers or people that are digesting your topics, it's like, okay, I'm not just doing this in a vacuum. There are people that are listening. Yeah, it's wild. Um, Again, for anybody listening, please go out to Lisa's website. I'm going to have a link to it in the show notes. Last, I wanted to touch some more on AS. Yeah. With your development of it and knowing that you had something going on for the years prior to it, what have you found, because you are in an area where there's just phenomenal access to doctors... What have you found out? What? How do you treat your AS? What's been helpful for you? Well, it's been a journey. So about 10 years ago, I was getting uveitis all the time. I mean, it was truly ruining my life. I had no idea. You know, I was 24. I had no idea what it even meant to be, like, sick, really. At that age, I was blissfully ignorant I had never dealt with a broken bone. I had nothing. So I honestly was still in that mindset of invincibility. And I was getting this uveitis. And I just thought my first doctor said, oh, it's contacts. You've been putting your contacts in too often. Just stop wearing them. Okay. So I take them out. The uveitis continues. It continues for two or three years. Finally, the doctor is like, I don't know. Let's get you tested. Let's, I think maybe sarcoidosis. Lyme disease. I remember Holy being cow. tested for, yeah, it was all over the place. And finally, my aunt, who had eye cancer, who also has AS, said, let's take you to a specialist. So she drove me to Philadelphia to a, to Will's Eye Center Hospital. We finally got the HLA BT7 testing. It was clear that there was some autoimmune situation going on. And then I had a lapse in insurance. So I didn't have insurance for a long time, and the uveitis went away, so I didn't think about it again. And then a few years ago, I was working in a corporate job, had good insurance again, so I decided, let's get this started. I was having horrible back pain, horrible fatigue, 
everything everything was different. My I felt like I was falling apart, and I was no longer the the fun, energetic person I used to be. So I had an AS diagnosis from two different rheumatologists at two of the top hospitals here in New York. One was NYU and the other is the Hospital for Special Surgery, where I currently have my rheumatologist. And yeah, it was clear that it was AS. And so for a long time, I managed with exercise and just eating well and stretching. And then I put on Humira, which didn't work for me and gave me the shingles and it was just I hated the shingles. It was the worst. So I came off of Humira. That was two years ago. And I've been managing really well with swimming, with exercise, with diet, and CBD. But then recently, literally three days ago, I had a chat with my doctor again about Cosentic. Just because I'm starting to lose a little bit of mobility in my knee and my hip. So, you know, COVID threw me into a loop here because I was swimming so often. And that was really keeping up my flexibility. And I think eliminating some of the inflammation just from moving and being so low impact. But, you know, the pool's all closed. So my body's been struggling to kind of get that movement, do what feels right for me without a pool, which is a total privilege, you know. So now I don't have insurance again. <laughs> so it's it's going to be a long road to figure that out, figure out how to pay for cosentics. And yeah, so right now it's CBD and exercise is the super short answer. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I've been very lucky my whole life to have had some insurance. You know, that has really played a key role in it. So I can certainly understand from your aspect, you look at a medication here in the States, what is it? $3,500, $4,000 a month for Cosentix? Oh, yeah. They do have the assistance program that's available, you know, whether you're in England, Australia, the United States. I, those all have, the biologic programs all have assisted. The biologic programs all have some type of assistance program through through the areas. But I believe yeah. it's still capped at fifteen, sixteen thousand. So you'd go through that in three months. Oh, my God. I know. That's what my doctor said. Just, it's mind-blowing. Has there been any change now as you and i record this and for anybody that listens two three four years down the road we're in the hopefully the tail end of the whole covid thing knock on wood knock on wood has there been anything in new york going on that allow the the pools to open back up or are they still shut down oh i think they're still shut down unless it's like someone has a pool in their building maybe it's open but i don't think any of them are open i go to one that is not allowed to be open. So there's really not much option. So I'm, I do a lot of YouTube videos, easy, standing, sitting, mobility stuff, yoga. Yeah. I mean, I just try to, I try to just keep moving. I, it's not easy, but it is what I think helps me in the end. Yeah. And I did that episode a few back with both Jeff and Jamie from yoga for AS that's amazing. They're pretty cool. They do YouTube videos as well as Facebook live videos for live YouTube sessions. And I think they do some Zoom stuff. And you know, I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to listen to that. But yoga is something that I wish I would have discovered 30 years ago. Mm. I think whenever anybody's diagnosed with a chronic illness like a, say, a rheumatoid arthritis, an ankylosing spondylitis, osteo, all of them. I think you should be given a prescription for meds if you want it and a prescription for a yoga class. I agree with you. I completely do. You know, there's not enough talk from the doctor's end about 
what things you can do yourself. It can't all be just medication. There has to be some self-care practices too. You're right. And, and again, this comment is going to really be from the United States side of it in our medical care system, but it may be applicable where listeners are in other countries. Here, I'm very surprised that you mentioned you had a corporate job and you had insurance there. I'm very surprised those big insurance companies don't insist that exercise be a required part of the treatment plan, that they don't run their own yoga classes. Could you imagine a a large insurance company that says, hey, you just got diagnosed with AS. Come over here to this yoga class. We're going to do real low-impact yoga. We're going to talk to you about diet, exercise. And it does two things. It gets the person active, and it gives them a social situation so that they don't retreat back to their house, lock themselves in, eat, and make it a potentially bad situation even worse. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea. Although I, I might have some controversial ideas, but I think the the insurance companies, I don't think they have our best interests in mind. I, I think that maybe the individuals work there too, but in terms of the co- company itself, like I feel like they just want us to pay for the medication and not do anything else to help us. Um, that might be negative, but... <laughs> no, I've looked at, you know, I looked at it not so much. Companies themselves generally are they're just an entity. They don't care. They don't discare. It's all based upon the people internally. But when you look at a large insurance company, my point of view was not so much that they're doing it out of some altruistic feelings. They're doing it because they want to save money. And if I get you exercising Uh, and I get you eating right and I keep you from doing bad stuff to yourself, it saves me money in the long term. Right. That makes sense. I, I hope I hope that we can live in a society where people are where companies and entities are interested in giving humans options. It would be great. Yeah, I, I think they're starting in some ways to see that. It's gonna take a long time, unfortunately. You know, the United States healthcare system, again, I don't want to bore people, but it was designed and the way it's tied to your jobs here in the States is a result of World War Two when wages were capped and the only way employers could get employees was to start offering benefits like health insurance, which really didn't exist prior to that. And so once all the soldiers came home from World War II and started to migrate back in the workforce, the healthcare tied to the jobs was already factored in and it was a done deal and it just never got separated out. So it's been... That is fascinating. Yeah, it's really only been this way for 60, 70 years. It's not some long-term, you know... Prior to World War II, there there was health insurance, but there really wasn't health insurance, um, not right. not in the way we have it today. And right. so our current structure is a byproduct of, unfortunately, World War II. And will that change someday? I hope so. I think we're really, so. you know, it would be great if we could get our health care. I don't know what the right plan is. I'm not saying that, you know, any political party has got the right process, the right plan, the right... I'm just saying it would be great to release ourselves as employees from being tied to a job we might not like, but we're afraid to go do something more creative, more technological, whatever it is, because we can't walk away from those health benefits. Oh, my God, absolutely. I think that really puts a damper on the development of all sorts of things that could happen here in the United States because very creative people are tied to jobs they can't stand due to having to keep that health care. So I don't, that's my soapbox. I'll get off of it. 
It's not an endorsement oh, of any no. political party. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah, no, it is. It's a bipartisan comment, I think. And you're right. I think you're absolutely right. That's a soapbox that I would stand on any day with you. Well, I would say, what would have happened if Bill Gates or Steve Jobs wouldn't have left their job they had because of their health insurance? Where would we be now? Right. And how many other people are like that that are tied to jobs they can't stand and but don't feel they can leave? So I, I don't know. That's that's my soapbox. I apologize. Didn't mean to go off on a tangent. No, I think it's really fascinating. And I think it sucks that people are in a job so they can get their health care. And I think it sucks that some people actually have to leave their jobs because they're getting so sick and they can't do it anymore. But then they lose their insurance. It's like a whole just multi-layered mess. And it sucks. It is. It's in it. It gets worse every decade. It goes along to a point where you're not sure what the string is to pull to kind of unwind it. Where Where's that string and that knot of yarn that's the right one to pull? Or am I just going to pull exactly. and make it even worse? Exactly. So. Exactly. Definitely what it feels like sometimes. And again, I apologize. I know we didn't start off talking about the U.S. healthcare system, but it is such a big part of so many people's lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was definitely like I, ha I mentioned it when I was talking for a reason. The insurance situation definitely has made the whole treatment of AS thing complicated. I, I think to myself every day that, I mean, I'm 35, going to be 35 in a month. So I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how bad things are going to get for me. For right now, things are sort of manageable enough that I can manage without medication. But, you know, I don't know what it's doing to the insides of my body. So it's insurance. It's this ever-looming monster in my life that I have to figure out. Well, and you mentioned that you use CBD oil. And I know that's really a, it's become such a, oh, just a, a, a general term. Divisive. Yeah, and I was thinking more just this this like term that gets thrown out for everything, but people don't understand what it is, where it is. You got a big chunk of people that say, oh, I don't want to smoke marijuana. You got the other people saying it's not marijuana. It's <laughs> just this oil that comes from, and you, yeah. there's just such a misunderstanding out there. Do you still take the CBD oil? What what type have you found helpful? Yeah, I'm, I'm very passionate about CBD. I Disclaimer, do not smoke weed. I don't like weed. I don't like being high. I used to smoke weed as a kid, as a teen, as a younger person, and I don't like it. I don't like being out of control of my body. So for anyone listening who fears marijuana, you can know in your heart, because I promise you, that CBD is not going to make you high. And this is from a tried and true hater of being high. So that's why I know CBD is good, safe. So I do use CBD. I use something called full spectrum. It contains 0.3% THC, which is not enough to get you high by any means. It contains that THC just because it that boosts the effects that that CBD oil gives you. And I buy it from a company called Bluebird Botanicals, which provides batch test information on every single batch of CBD oil that they create. You can see exactly what's inside of it. You can read about all of the compounds that are inside of it. So I've been taking that for about three months, four months, taking about 15 drops of, uh, three times a day. And I've noticed an improvement in my mood, in my anxiety, and definitely in pain and mobility. And I, I do believe it works. I don't think it's, what is it called when it's in your mind? Uh, psychosomatic thing. I don't, uh, what is uh, Not panacea. 
Yeah, something like that, though. I don't think it's just me treating myself into believing it works. I think it really works. Placebo. Yeah, placebo. Thank you. So I'm a health writer by day. That's my main source of income. And I've done tons of research on CBD and inflammation, and it definitely helps. There's a big study that's going to happen on CBD and ankylosing spondylitis. I think they're just looking to find the participants. So it's a big combo, and it's important, I think. I really, I really do love it. I really do love CBD. Now, how did you find out, how long did it take you to figure out that you needed, say, that 15 drops three times a day? Because there really is no effective dosing guide. No. First of all, that's what it says on the bottle. 15 drops is one serving. But I started with seven drops, and it was working. And I actually was in the middle of COVID, and I had high anxiety. I was flaring up from my anxiety. And so I took half the dose because I was sort of scared. I didn't know what CBD, you know, what it would do to me. So I just took half the drops, noticed it worked. And then some of my flares got a little bit worse later on, and I, I doubled the dose to 15 drops. And it's been good. I mean, it's not curing my ankylosing spondylitis, but it definitely keeps the edge off. It keeps me mobile. It keeps me at a decent level of energy. I do believe it reduces inflammation. But at the same time, I would say, you know, talk to your doctor, continue your drug. CBD is a great tool. It's a great addition. I wouldn't say it's your be all end all, but it's made massive strides in my mental health, which affects my physical health. My anxiety is almost entirely gone. So that's something I think that's really worth it when if you if you get flare ups tied to your mental state. Interesting. And I think that's the key, though, is. For anybody listening, when you're going out to look for CBD oil, which, again, I'm going to say just for the states, it it should be legal in all 50 states. There's the Like you said, there's a small amount of THC in it, but that doesn't make it a federally prohibited product. So if you're looking, at least in the United States, CBD oil should be available in all 50 states. The key is it's got to be full spectrum. Got to be full spectrum. No, I was just going to say there is... THC-free CBD, as you probably know, but it is that 0.3% THC that they say creates what they call an entourage effect, which is the full effect of CBD. It kind of pulls in all of those like helpful healing compounds. So yeah, full spectrum, definitely. That little bit of THC is, like you said, it's not enough to get you high. It does appear to be the key that is needed to unlock that CBD to let it do its full job. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Because I know there were some products early on in the CBD revolution that that were down to like 0.01 or, you know, the minimum they could squeeze everything out of it. And through the studies and through interactions with customers, they found that that might not be the best way. And I, I think those were when you're not into a full spectrum CBD, it was eliminating certain things. So there's a number of companies out there that sell CBD oil in, in both the states and other places. Make sure it's full spectrum. Make sure that you can look at the ingredients, any testing, mm-hmm. anything. If it's not showing you those items, if it's not showing you the testing, even down the company that I work with, I think does it all the way down to the batches. So you can look at yeah. you know, the, the medical testing for each batch. And then you have to just experiment after that. As as Lisa said, she took seven or eight drops of what it was, and now it's up to 15. You might start off at 15 and go down to seven. I, you have to experiment with it, unfortunately. So, and it's, you do. 
it's not a something as far as I can tell that you experiment with for two or three days and decide it's you you need to commit for at least a month to see possibly results. Definitely. There's there's a the company I work with that I use gives a set of three different C B D oils and each of them have different make and model. So for example, I used one that included frankincense and myrrh, which are, you know, two compounds that are supposed to be great for inflammation and arthritis and I didn't notice the difference and in fact I feel like it made me feel kind of off kilter so after that month I knew that that wasn't my thing but the other two oils that came in this kit for trial loved them they make me feel awesome super happy super calm so yeah I do believe like as you said trying testing it giving it a minute to see if it works is so important You've got such good writing, and when you go to explore the link for ankylosingspondylitis.net for Lisa's writing, there's just there's links after links after links through all the article. And when you click on one, whether it go to meditation or her medication links, it'll just link to more stories that she's written. So you really can go down a great rabbit hole to learn. And I think your writing is very unique because you have tried a number of natural remedies You've written about that, both the good and the bad, what you've encountered, what you mm-hmm. hope to encounter, and what you didn't encounter. I think that's very valuable for people to read as well. Oh, I'm glad. I'm really glad. I want to help people. Last but not least, because I know you've got a busy day and I, I appreciate the time, you've got both of in the show notes, I'm going to have links to your Instagram page, your Facebook page, and you're active on pretty much, not maybe regularly, but I, I see you right across a number of the ankylosing spondylitis forums on Facebook quite often. So you're out there and, and easily accessible for people to, to talk with you, correct? Absolutely. I would love to talk to people, especially anyone who's like newly diagnosed or has some questions. I'm always happy to help. Great. And anybody has questions on submitting poetry to you, on Lisa's website, there's a contact link. Follow that so you can get in touch with her. And Lisa, I'm very, very thankful for your time. It was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, too. I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me about AS and my writing and just uh, introducing me to your listeners. It's been really, really nice. I love your podcast. I think you do such a cool thing. I love the, the range of topics you encounter, and I'm really, really happy to be here. Well, that's a scatterbrain mind just never focusing on one specific topic long enough. <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I'm similar to you. I, I love it. I really wanted people to understand that there's so many layers to you. I've known you from the net side and the the more co-worker type side and the, the very specific medical writing that I've never really spent a lot of time getting into your poetry side. And I think I'm going to spend a bit more time on that side because it's just so varied and so interesting. And I hope people will take that journey as well. And then let Lisa know via Instagram or or Facebook or wherever what you're reading, what you like, what you're thinking. And, you know, I, I just think there's so many just cool things out there that even though we might have a chronic illness, it doesn't mean AS limits us. It doesn't limit your mind. It doesn't limit your creativity. It doesn't limit what you can go and do. So I I want people to focus on that. That is a beautiful message. I completely agree with you. That's honestly, that's the best way of summing it up. I agree. We can all be creative and beautiful and we're totally enough already. And this disease makes it challenging, but it doesn't, it doesn't kill who we are. 
hopefully it brings out a different part, a better part, a a more introspective part. So anyway, I, I really appreciate your time, Lisa. I thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Me too, Jason. Have a lovely day. Thank you so much. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.